today's scripture comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken, spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, let's talk about the man of lawlessness, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Not your typical Sunday morning topic, I know. But it's important. And you need to know about this. I'll tell you why it's important. Some of you might be even been saying to yourself right now, you know, Pastor Tony, come on, do we really need to know this? Second Thessalonians 2, all this talk about the Antichrist. Do we really need to know these details about what takes place at the end of time? Can't we just be surprised by what happened or what's going to happen? Yeah, I think I'd be inclined to dismiss this maybe as a top shelf discussion that not every Christian needs to know about. But think about this for a second, if you would. Let's just do a thought experiment. How much time did Paul have in Thessalonica with the Christians before he was kicked out of that city? Do you remember? Maybe a few months. That's actually probably a generous estimation. It was closer, probably less than that, probably just a few weeks he had with them to plant the church, teach them, minister to them, and then, you know, that mob came and drove Paul out of town. And what's amazing about that, if you think about verse 5, just look at verse 5 with me, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you for just a few weeks, I told you these things? So Paul was with them for maybe just a few weeks before he was kicked out of town, and Yet Paul found the time with this group of new believers to teach them about the end times and about Christ's returns and even the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. That's fascinating to me. You know, you got two weeks, three weeks, four weeks with new believers, and Paul would cover this topic because obviously Paul thinks it's important for even new believers to know this. And you know what? The Holy Spirit considers this important too, for you to know, for me to know. So important, in fact, that he recorded in the scriptures a lengthy section of the scriptures as well as other places in Revelation and Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Matthew and elsewhere. God wants us to know this stuff and be aware 
of what's going to happen as we near the end. So with that perspective in mind, knowing that the Holy Spirit thinks this is important for us to understand and reckon with, let's talk about the Antichrist. Let's talk about, we'll talk about more than just that today, but let's deal with this and let's understand what happens as we near the end of human history. Here's our outline for today. You can see these in your notes and write these down as we go. You can go ahead and write this down as number one. What should we expect before Christ's great victory? I'll give you four things today. And, and my favorite part of that passage that Katie just read was, you know, the, the talk about Christ's great victory in verse eight, talking about the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. He will destroy the Antichrist and, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, of Jesus' coming. Hallelujah. That's what awaits in the future. I know things will get bad before they get better, but that's what we have to anticipate in the end, is that Christ will be victorious. Now, what happens? What should we expect before that great victory? Four things. Here's the first thing, a prevalence of deception. You should expect this, Harvest Decatur. Paul even uses the term delusion here. I mean, the, the Antichrist in this passage thinks he's God. He is delusional. And he leads a rebellion of delusional people. That's what we can expect. But you can expect even leading up into that time, a prevalence of deception. And this dates back even to Paul's day. You know, we don't, we know from what Christ has said by his own words that, that deception will increase, that even pseudo-Christ will appear on the scene as his second coming nears. We know that from Jesus' own words. Here's the deceptions that the Thessalonians were dealing with even 2,000 years ago. Verse 1, Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul dealt with that in 1 Thessalonians, if you remember, and so he's circling back with it. And are being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. It's already happened. Apparently, there were these teachers that were you know, going around Thessalonica like chicken little, telling people, the sky has already fallen. The sky has already fallen. Jesus has already come. And, you know, the Thessalonians, this is a healthy church. We've read about this already, and Paul has complimented them now in two separate letters. This is a good church, a healthy church, but they have been duped, at least some of them, into thinking something erroneous about Jesus' coming. And so Paul's trying to steady them, trying to say, you know, don't believe these false rumors. Don't believe even these forged documents. There must have been some kind of forged document from Paul in this time that was circulating. People even our day believe in weird documents that are ascribed to different uh, apostles that are not authoritative, that are not part of our scriptures. So it's not surprising that they would believe it in Paul's day. And so Paul is saying here, Steady yourself. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by these alarmists, these forgeries saying that Christ has already returned. The rapture's already happened, maybe they're saying. You know, Christ has already come and he's established his victory and you missed it. The whole idea of what those people are saying and what those forgeries are saying is preposterous. You know, that's, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because 
People believe crazy things in our day too. So it's not surprising that 2,000 years ago they would be duped by these things. And that's why Paul needs to exercise some clear leadership and give some clarity here on Christ's return. Now let me be clear about this too as well because in no way is Paul saying don't be alert. Okay? He's saying don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. But he's not saying don't be alert. And the reason I know that's the case is because he has said And Christ says himself as well by his own words that we need to be vigilant, that we need to await Christ's return, that we need to be prepared when he he comes back. Are y'all with me? But there is a massive difference between being alert and being alarmed. Y'all with me? We need to be alert. We need to be vigilant. That's a great word. Watchful but not alarmed. And what does that look like? You know, in, in your personal life, in my life, it means, come on, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. I'm ready right now. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Without fear, without being afraid that he has already come. Or he, here's the fear that circulates in our day a little bit more, even in, in bad theology. He, he's, he might not come at all. Or, you know, Christ, when he comes, it's going to be kind of a a spiritual coming. He's going to be coming in our hearts when he comes back. Don't believe that. That's not true. Y'all remember Revelation 19? I read that for you last week, this picture of Jesus as he comes back. It describes the day of the Lord and you know, Christ comes riding in on a white horse, leading his army from heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got king of kings emblazoned on his robe, and he's got lord of lords tattooed on his thigh. That is not Christ coming in our hearts, okay? And that is not subtle in any way. It is unmistakable when he returns, You'll know it, okay? It's not some dinky little thing going on in the Middle East. Hmm, I think Christ came. Maybe he did, maybe he did. I don't know. It's not going to work that way. We're going to know, and it's going to be a bodily return too. Christ with his new resurrection body. Remember, those who were dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we'll come with him. It'll be unmistakable. And so Paul, I mean, as best he can, he's trying to convey to the Thessalonians, you didn't miss anything. You haven't missed Christ's return. You can't miss it if you're a believer. And even in this world, it will be so obvious to believers and unbelievers alike, it will change the course of history. It will end the course of history. And so, let me tell you my view on this, and then we'll move on to the second point. Here's what I think is going to happen. We've talked about this already, and there's some debate about this. I believe that Christ will rapture his church and remove us, leading into a seven-year period of tribulation. And all this talk in this passage about some really evil things, even the Antichrist setting himself up as God and uh, proclaiming himself as God in the temple, I think this will take place in this seven-year period of tribulation. While the church is removed, while the church is in the presence of the Lord, while the church is waiting to return, and then we will come, with Christ, Christ riding on his right horse, Christ tattooed with Lord of Lords on his thigh. It'll be like a, 
like a John Wayne Wild West epic. Christ coming in and us with him and all the armies of heaven coming with him. And that day of the Lord will be unmistakable. And we'll be a part of it in some way, in some way. And we won't miss it. If you know Christ, you won't miss it, okay? Everybody, just take a deep breath, okay? He's coming back. He's coming back. And what Paul is saying here, he's giving them some clues as to the fact that he hasn't come back yet. And one of the things he says very clearly is it's going to get worse before that happens. It's going to get worse. It might be cold comfort for the Thessalonians, but at least they know they haven't missed it yet. What should we expect before Christ's great victory? We should expect a prevalence of deception. People will be deceived like they were apparently in the Thessal- among the Thessalonians, thinking that the day of the Lord has already come. In our day, people are deceived into thinking they know the exact timing of when Christ returns. Don't fall for that either. Here's something else we should expect before Christ's great victory. We should ex- expect the unleashing of a man of lawlessness. A man of anarchy, if you want to say it that way. An antinomian man, a man of lawlessness. Paul says this, verse 3, let no one be deceived among you in any way. People are running around in Thessalonica telling people, Jesus already come, Jesus already come. Paul says, no, let no one deceive you in any way, not just in that way, in any way about Christ's return. For that day, the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Let's just talk about this Antichrist figure for a little bit. There are few different names that's used for this individual, and I do think it is an individual. Uh, Paul, in fact, Paul never calls him the Antichrist. That's John's language. John refers to a Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness here, or the son of perdition, son of destruction. He's referred to as the beast in the book of Revelation. He's the one who was prophesied in the book of Daniel as the little horn. And that was 500 years before Christ's first coming, by the way. And just to be clear, too, you know, there is the Antichrist, but there are also Antichrists. And John makes that clear. There's a plural Antichrists that John refers to in his uh, first and second epistle. And, you know, John talks about any person who opposes Christ, who Uh, denies the truth about Christ. Jesus spoke himself about pseudo-Christ that will impersonate him, try to usurp him, especially as the time of his coming draws near. And I will say this too. So there's been antichrists, plural, throughout human history. And there have been a lot of antichrists and a lot of antichrist spirit that has hovered around the churches and in some cases actually permeated the churches. And that's a really sad thing. I'll give you a few examples of this. David Koresh, for instance, claimed at one time to be a born-again believer and was part of a Southern Baptist church. His name is Vernon Wayne Howe. 
But uh, David, he took the name David because he thought he was the new son of David. Koresh is a Hebrew word linked to Cyrus in the Old Testament, thinking he was a great deliverer, not so great as a deliverer as, as it turns out. Um, but, you know, he came through the ranks of the church and infiltrated the church. Jim Jones was a student pastor as a Methodist church in, uh, in Indiana. Jim Jones, you know, this guy who tried to mix socialism and Christianity. Good luck with that. I, I, those two things don't mix. Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, they were both Methodists from Vermont. Smith went on to write the Book of Mormon. As you know, he was actually killed in Carthage, Illinois by a mob because he was a well-known cheat and scoundrel in that community in Carthage. Muhammad grew up around many Arabs and Jews. So it, all that to say this, a lot of deceit, a lot of antichrist spirit actually surrounds the church and tries to infiltrate the church. And that's why Paul says repeatedly in the New Testament, watch out for wolves. Watch out for people like this who try to infiltrate the church and try to lead people astray. I read recently about a man named Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. While growing up in Puerto Rico, de Jesus was a petty thief and a heroin addict. But after that, he became a professing believer. He became a Pentecostal pastor, even. And then later, as he was a member of a Southern Baptist church, Angels supposedly spoke to him and told him that he was the second coming of Christ. Later, de Jesus believed that he was God. He actually referred to himself as a El Jesucristo hombre, the man Jesus Christ. He said this, I am greater than Jesus. I teach better than Jesus. I won't die even if they try to kill me. I will be the president of the biggest government of the of the earth that the earth has ever experienced. And I'm going to change the whole world. By the way, just a footnote on that. De Jesus died in 2013. So it's confusing too about that individual De Jesus. He also referred to himself as the antichrist and would wear openly. I think it's in that picture, the 666 number from the book of revelation. Calling himself the antichrist was just about the closest thing to truth that that guy was teaching. And it's the spirit of the Antichrist, it's the Antichrist, plural, that have come throughout, you know, David Koresh, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, De Jesus, these Antichrists, these pseudo-Christs. But I want to be clear about this. First John refers to the Antichrist plural, but he also talks about the Antichrist. And that's this son of lawlessness that Paul's referring to. That according to the book of Revelation, you know, this Antichrist will arise in our world. He will harness the power of Satan and rule a one world kingdom from Babylon. That one world kingdom will last for seven years in what's called the Great Tribulation. This is what Paul refers to as the rebellion in verse 3. And as part of that rebellion, the Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God and proclaim himself as God. And here's what Paul is saying about that. He's saying that, okay, there might be an Antichrist spirit. There might be even kind of an Antichrist thing going on among the Roman emperors, Nero and Caligula and all these others, people who are opposing Jesus, people who are opposing Christians. But the real Antichrist, the full Antichrist, hadn't come yet. And Christ, before Christ comes, 
That Antichrist has to come. And you think Nero is bad? You think Caligula is bad? You think David Koresh is bad? You ain't seen nothing yet till this Antichrist shows up. He's going to make those guys seem like Mother Teresa. It's kind of odd the way that Paul reasons here. If you follow his argument, he's like, relax, Thessalonians. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So you got nothing to worry about. That Christ has already come yet. Phew, oh, thanks, Paul. It's going to get worse. Okay, glad. Glad to hear that. That's his argument. It's going to get worse before it gets better. The Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to rule, and it's going to be awful. But then Christ will come. In fact, Christ is going to destroy him with the words of his mouth. Boom, you're done. And all of this is happening under the purview of God's sovereignty. He knows what's happening. He's even in charge of it. So relax, Thessalonians. Relax, Decatur. You're like, Pastor Tony, I was relaxed until I got here this morning. Now, relax, Harvest Decatur, because it's going to get worse before it gets really good. That's Paul's argument here. And this, it leads me to believe two things. One that's crystal clear, I think, and then another thing that's more speculative. The clear part is that Christ is going to conquer everyone and everything. And that's, that's going to happen. Jesus will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth, bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So that Christ is just going to wipe out evil from this world and set up his kingdom. But it also, and this is more speculative, I know there's some debate about this, also leads me to believe that possibly, just possibly, the church will be raptured when it gets bad, before it gets really bad, and that we will escape those things. So Paul's encouraging him, don't be, don't be alarmed. The rapture still has to happen, and the Antichrist still has to be revealed before the end comes, before Christ returns, and you hadn't missed it. You hadn't missed it yet. Write this down as number three. Here's another thing we should expect before Christ's great victory. Sorry to say more bad news. There's going to be a satanic upsurge, according to Paul. Paul says in verse six, you know, Thessalonians, what is restraining him, this this antichrist, now so that he may be revealed in his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So there's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. We know this. There's sin in our world. There's Satan. He's active. And there's this spirit of the Antichrist that's, that's hovering in our world right now. There's um, deceivers out there. And that's been the case even since the first century John said this in 2 John 1, 8, you can read this on the screen. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That's this antichrist spirit that's been around for 2,000 years. John said in 1 John, likewise, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is from God, sorry, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So Paul says similarly here, verse seven, the mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the antichrist can come and wreak 
this ultimate havoc, this great rebellion. Now here's the question. Who's the restrainer? Who's doing this restraining? For the mystery, look at verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Who's doing this restraining? Who's the restrainer? Let's talk about this. The Greek word here for restrain is the word kateko, and it means to prevent or hinder or restrain. Who's doing the restraining? Honestly, this is a little frustrating here because in verse five, I read this already. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? You know who the restrainer is. You know why that's frustrating? Paul assumes they already knew it because he told them, but he doesn't say it explicitly here. And I wish he would have. Who is it? Because we weren't there when Paul was teaching the Thessalonians. And he doesn't, so who is it? Who is it? Who's the restrainer? I read, there's debate. I read some church fathers this week on this issue. Some of them think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Some think it's Michael, the archangel. Some church fathers think it's the Roman Empire that's restraining in some way evil, the government that God established. Some actually think it's Satan himself who's restraining the Antichrist. That just seems ludicrous to me. I, I didn't follow that line of reasoning. Calvin thought that this was a reference to God restraining worldwide rebellion. So God himself restraining worldwide rebellion, the worst impulses of man until the gospel can permeate throughout the world. I think there's something to be said for Calvin's view. Here's my view. I'm more inclined to see the restrainer as very simply the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And it's not that God will remove the Holy Spirit from the world in this time of rebellion. That's not possible because God is omnipresent. Instead, what I think is that a certain aspect of the Holy Spirit's presence presence and the Holy Spirit's work will be removed from the world, namely the church. And what the Holy Spirit does through the church, that will be removed. And then Satan will be given greater ability to wreak havoc upon our world. The impulses of man will be unchecked by the presence of the church in the world. Here's Warren Wearsby's take on this. I think Wearsby's right. You can read this on the screen. He says, many Bible students identify the restrainer as the Holy Spirit of God. Certainly he is in the midst of God's program today. That's how literally the Greek is rendered. The one who's in the midst will be removed from the midst. Working through the church to accomplish God's purposes. When the church is raptured, Wearsby says, The Holy Spirit will not be taken out of the world, otherwise nobody could be saved during the tribulation, but he will be taken out of the midst of the world through the church to allow Satan and his forces to go to work. The Holy Spirit will be present on the earth during the day of the Lord, but he will not be restraining the forces of evil as he is today. Wiersbe also says this, 
He says, in spite of its weaknesses and its seeming failure, never underestimate the importance of the church in the world. People who criticize the church do not realize that the presence of the people of God in the world gives unsaved people opportunity to be saved. And I would say there's even a restraining of evil that's at work through God's activities in the church. I'll give you an example of that. Why I think this and ways in which that's at work already in our day. I like to listen to a podcast uh, called The World and Everything in It. And every Friday, there's a Culture Friday segment with John Stone Street. John Stone Street is the uh, president of uh, the, the Col- uh, Chuck Colson ministry. And um, he's made some comments on that podcast that I think are really insightful. And one of the things that he repeatedly says is that, you know, the world's going to miss Christianity and Christian influence when it's gone, especially in our world right now, especially in our country right now in the public sector sector, they keep trying to exclude Christianity, exclude Christians, exclude just an example that he cites is FEMA and Stone Street says this about that. You can read this on the screen. If you have received any assistance from FEMA, you know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, it likely came through the hands of somebody faith-based, a Christian, a Methodist, a Lutheran, a Southern Baptist. It's amazing because that's what Christians do. That's what they've always done. It's just kind of part of the gig of being a Christian. And then he asks this question, do you really want Christians to keep faith to themselves? to not be active in the public sector. That's what we hear of our culturally unpopular beliefs, like our belief about sex and marriage and gender and those things which are more controversial. But if Christians kept their faith to themselves, we wouldn't see nearly the progress we've seen in dealing with global poverty, for example, or the AIDS crisis. And it doesn't just go through our lifetime, it goes back to the beginning of the church. Stone Street says this, when there's a tragedy when there's a disaster, when there's a plague, when there's a famine, if you look for the helpers, by and large, you're going to find an awful lot of Christians. And that's true. You know, people used to ask Mr. Rogers. You remember Mr. Rogers? People used to ask Mr. Rogers, how do you kit? How do you help kids understand a great tragedy? Why it happened? How how do you help them process a great tragedy? And Mr. Rogers would say, I tell them to look for the helpers. Look for those people that come up after the tragedy and demonstrate the image of God inside of them and their generosity and their care. And you know what? There have been a lot of Christians throughout human history who have been part of the helpers. And that goes back to the very beginning of Christianity. When we were the ones that were rescuing children that were left on the streets, when we were the ones that were opposing slavery and fighting for equal treatment of women, Christians were those who were building hospitals and schools and fighting totalitarian regimes in our world. And what Stone Street keeps asking is, you really want Christians to stop being active like that? You're gonna miss us when we're gone. You're gonna miss our influence when it's gone. You don't have the forces in the atheistic worldviews of our world to backfill what Christians do. Here's why I'm saying all this. Here's why this is really important. Here's what's really scary about 2 Thessalonians 2. 
Because if I'm right about who the restrainer is in that passage, that means that the greatest force for human good in our world will be removed. And so that's how the Antichrist will rise up. That's how this rebellion will get started. That's how the worst inclinations of human beings will be unleashed and all hell will break loose on this world. That is coming. Paul says that's coming down the pike. Even from our vantage point, 2,000 years after Paul, we can say that's coming. But what Paul is also saying right now is that it hadn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. The end hasn't come. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And part of that, as Paul alludes to in this passage, is that this Antichrist figure will actually be controlled by Satan. Paul says in verse 8, and then this lawless one, this Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I can't get enough of that. That is great. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders even and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here's the saddest part of this passage. It's a hard passage, I know. But here's what I would say is the saddest part. Paul alludes to this in verse 10, but he gets real specific in verses 11 and 12. The saddest thing that will happen as we near to Christ's return is something that we need to be aware of, and that's a strong delusion that will be poured out on unbelievers. Number four, a strong delusion. What should we expect before Christ's great victory? A strong delusion. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They refuse to love the truth, Paul says, verse 10. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. It was right there for the taking, but they refused it. They refused to love the truth and be saved, and so because of that, because they believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned, who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, God sends on them a delusion. Let me be clear about this. There will be, as we near Christ's return, an increase in false belief. There will be, as we near Christ's return, an increase in unrighteous pleasure-seeking. There will be, as we near Christ's return, an increase in delusion and even counter-accusations that Christians are delusional as we're thinking, no, please, listen, You are deceived. That's what's coming. Can I just say this, Harvest Decatur? Just as warning as your pastor, because I love you, don't get duped by false belief and false teaching as we near Christ's return. Be alert. Don't be alarmed. Be alert. Be watchful. And trust the scriptures and trust what God has revealed here. When's Christ coming back, Pastor Tony? When's Christ coming back? I don't know. You know, we're on a need-to-know basis. And God has determined that we don't need to know. 
But we need to know this, and, and God has revealed this in his scripture, there will be deceivers, and there will be delusion. So watch yourself. Hold fast to the truth. It'll be like the days of Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? He hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart. Remember that reciprocal nature, what's going on in the Old Testament as Pharaoh was delusional about what was happening with the Israelite people. It'll be like that as we near Christ's coming. People will reject Christ, and so God gives them over to delusion. People refuse to love the truth and be saved, so God gives them over to a strong delusion. And they follow a psychopath, the Antichrist. That's what will happen. And here's my advice to you, Harvest Decatur. You know, raptured, not raptured, whatever happens, however God orchestrates that in the days ahead, you hold fast to the truth. And I'll, I'll say it even stronger than that. Love the truth. Love it. Like your life depends on it and it does. Your eternity depends on it. Love the truth. Hold fast to the truth and don't be alarmed when people do vile things in this world. When do, people do vile things against God and unrighteousness and unbelief are celebrated in our world and even violence is perpetrated against Christians. That's going to happen before Christ emerges victorious. Christ will emerge victorious after all that. And so, we, so will we if our faith is sincere. If we truly believe what he's done for us, his death upon the cross, his resurrection, do you believe that? Is your faith sincere? Are you at church today and believe because that's expedient? Or, or in the depth of your being, you believe that Christ died and he paid for your sins and he was resurrected from the dead and he's coming back for us. Believe it, believe it. Love the truth, love the truth. So let me close with this. Okay, so a message like this can be a little unnerving, right? And maybe you need to be a bit unnerved and processed. Process 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. There's some questions for you to do that in your notes. Process with your small group. Maybe think this through a little bit more. But before we're done, I, I want to give you three statements about hope. Can I give you some hope before we're done? <laughs> okay, Sonia's ready. Can I give you some hope before we're done, Harvest Decatur? Just three things. And keep these in mind. You, you might say, well, what is our hope? You know, what do I hang my hat on, Pastor Tony, as we near Christ's return? When things get bad, if things get worse, if unbelief spreads and unrighteousness continues to be celebrated in our world, here's our hope. In the here and now, even, not just in the future. Here's our hope in the here and now. 
Number one, God is sovereign over all human history. God knew this was going to happen. God recorded it ahead of time. God even gave us some clues about what's going to happen in the end. You know, God didn't give us, I don't think we have this explicit detail about how everything's going to unfold. We have some clues. We have some ideas. But I trust by what God has revealed to us that he's got all of it in his hands. I used to sing that to Alistair when he was a little boy. He's got the whole world in his hands. And it's true. And he's got human history in his hands. And even though the evil that's going to come into this world is going to be utterly evil, God will use it for his greater purposes, and he is sovereign over all human history. Is there hope in that, church? You better believe there is. God never says, oops, people. He never says, how'd that happen? Never. He is sovereign over all human history. Number two, Satan will have his victories in our world. He will. He's the prince of the power of the air. God has given him latitude right now to wreak havoc and even more havoc in the days to come. But Satan, Satan's victories are temporary. Just think about that, that seven-year tribulation period that I talked about. Seven years compared to 10,000 years and then forevermore with the Lord. Satan's victories are temporary. Satan's victories in your life are temporary. They're going to come to an end. I was talking about that yesterday at the memorial service for Kelly and, you know, that, that battle she has in so much of her life is over. And she's in the presence of the Lord. And that's glorious. That's glorious. And that leads right into number three. Satan's victories are temporary. Jesus is the eternal victor. And he's going to set everything right in the end. He's going to bring his kingdom And it's going to be awesome and it's going to be righteous as I understand it. After the day of the Lord, there'll be a thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom, a la Revelation 20. And then a new heaven and a new earth will be created and then we'll enter in the presence of the Lord and we'll live with him forever in the new Jerusalem. All of that, Revelation 20 through 22. You should read that once a year at least and just be reminded of what awaits King Jesus and his kingdom and all the people that reside in his kingdom. Satan has his temporary victories. Jesus is the eternal victor. Amen, church? Y'all believe that? So bow your knee to him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. We can do that right now. God, help us to love the truth.
We love it, Lord. We love what you have revealed to us about who you are, about who we are. Lord, there's so much deception in our world right now about what, what constitutes being a human. And yet we believe, we believe that you created human beings in the image of God, that you love us and that you died for us. We believe that truth. And Lord, we pray for the men and women in this room, for the young ones that are part of this church, that you will protect us from deception, protect us from wolves, protect us from the schemes of the enemy and from evil, and help us, Lord, even as our world worsens, to hold fast to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, Lord, thank you, thank you for yesterday and the memorial service that was a reminder that even though we will face death, even though we will suffer, Lord, in this world, that our eternity is fixed with you, and that we will live forever free from pain and sorrow and suffering. And all of that was made possible by your glorious work on the cross, your death on our behalf, your resurrection. Jesus, we believe, we believe that truth. We love that truth. And we ask you to help us live it out. Amen.